I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the London Elections podcast in association with Little Atoms. With me, Josh Nico. In this episode, we look at transport infrastructure in the context of a city projected to increase in population from 8.6 million today to 11 million as soon as 2039, according to the Office for National Statistics, and the mayoral candidate's plans for the environment in the light of London breaking EU air quality rules just over a week into 2016. Our guests this episode are Alexander Jan, who leads the city economics team at Independent Engineers and Consultants, Arup which works with the GLA, TfL and across government to make sense of new infrastructure projects from an economic perspective. He's a regular columnist for City AM. Alex Ingram is an itinerant cycling campaigner who's worked with cycling groups in Hammersmith and now in Lewisham and Islington and with national campaigns. He moved to London in 2004 and blogs at Alex in the Cities. Kate Arnell is a TV presenter who's worked on MTV and CBBC, and currently presents BBC America's Anglophenia. She has a blog on eco-living at EcoBoost, with a hyphen, and lives in Chelsea. John Ellidge is a journalist and editor of the New Statesman's City Metric site. He presents a podcast called Skylines, and says he spends a lot of time shouting about housing policy on the internet. My first question was to Alexander Jan, asking him whether the next mayor will suffer due to a lack of new transport projects in the pipeline initiated by Boris Johnson and the possibility of less generous government funding for London in future. So I think in terms of, I mean, there are a number of levers that the the mayor and his uh, agencies, his commissioners have to pull in order to get anything done. And in the case of transport, we know how slow and torturous the process can be of going from having the good idea to uh, Her Majesty or anyone else for that matter, opening the, you know, cutting the ribbon on these things. And Crossrail is a great example. So some people would, uh, some historians would argue that Crossrail was first mooted in the 1940s uh, and the Greater London Development Plan. But even if you um, take a slightly more uh, optimistic view of when it was first mooted, it's a 30, 30 years ago project. And that's going to, it's due to open in a couple of years' time. So these projects are, the, the bigger projects tend to be, Large scale, complicated, lots of parties and stakeholders who have need to have to be addressed. You have to have good process, fair treatment, and of course secure the funding. And I think 
both, what's very interesting is that both mayoral candidate, but mayors that we've had today, both Boris and Ken, have broadly speaking been in favour of the same sorts of things. And um, perhaps ironically, you know, uh, we've seen a situation where where Boris, for example, has opened or been associated with projects that his predecessor, Ken, um, was perhaps responsible for originating. But that's a kind of rather short view of history um, because many of these projects actually predated even the office of mayor. So I think we have to give them credit for continuity, which is something that you don't necessarily see in national politics. And indeed, you know, Boris has overseen a number of projects and improvements to London's infrastructure, which future mayors will potentially be able to take credit for. I mean, Crossrail opening in a few years' time will be the purview of the next mayor. The Tube has seen a remarkable improvement in its reliability, um, you know, 40% odd reduction in delays. And uh, as long as those can be perpetuated, the next mayor will be able to sort of, you know, continue to bask in the transport sunshine that those have created. And then there are slightly more interesting areas, I guess, around the new bus for London, the Boris bus, and indeed the cable car, where it's been a slightly more... Um, uh, uh, there's been more debate around the value of some of those projects but at least you can't claim that the you know the mayors have sat on their thumbs they have got on with projects whatever we think of them John would you agree with this uh, charitable view of Boris achievements and also the sense he's been an active mayor I very much enjoyed the use of the words interesting and debate there um, the 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 new bus for London the, the new form of the route master is a terrible waste of money it's cost us something like 350 million pounds to build 800s of them and uh, transport for london still doesn't own the rights to the things because it didn't order a thousand of them um it costs roughly twice as much per bus as an old school bus and once you get on them you boil um it, it's kind of a bus for people who don't travel on buses i think they it's it's you know buses as street furniture rather than buses as mode of transport um, the cable car, I've been... I, I, actually, I'm going to be less mean about the cable car because it is possible to envision a future in which there is enough stuff going on at the O2 and the Royal Docks that it will be kind of a valuable and fun way of getting between them. Um, I don't think that stuff exists at the moment, so there's fewer people using that than there are in most local buses. Um, but it is possible sometime in the future. And, you know, when the DLR was built, nobody was using that either. And now it's an essential piece of transport infrastructure. So, you know, I, I, I think there are some projects that look a bit silly now because they just haven't matured. And there are others that look a bit silly now because they were frankly a bit silly. We ever spent money on them. And do you see a continuity between the approach Boris has taken and what uh, either of the front runners might do? Mayors do tend to follow a certain continuity with their predecessors. There's a, a, an American academic called Edmund Glazer, who is uh, a, a bit, uh, he writes about cities, um, and he's got this nice line that there is no uh, democratic or republican way to take out the trash. You know, once you're mayor, you kind of just need to do certain things to keep a city moving, um, which I think explains why, despite the fact that it will be difficult to think of two more ideologically different politicians than, than Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson. If you look at what they have actually did, they, there was a lot of continuity between those two as well. So I imagine that whoever wins on, on May 5th is probably going to keep following a lot of the same lines because there are certain problems we need to solve in London. 
Josh, can I just come out? Go for your audio. Please say, yeah. I mean, just on the bus issue, I, I you know, I hear what, what John's saying, but two thoughts on this. First of all, it was a, you know, deliberate attempt to try and produce something which was designed to reflect the needs of London and Londoners. Now, we can, you know, argue about the practicalities of it and how it how it works and how it doesn't work in terms of the open door and everything. But it was an attempt to do something which was designed to meet the needs of the city. And, um, you know, I think we do have to give credit for that. And the story's not over. I mean, there are plans to sort the windows out and so forth. The second thing is that, you know, when central government in particular gets these things wrong, I'm not sure how much ministers or civil servants are typically held to account. And this is another very important theme, I think, for for the discussion today, which is around the extent to which London having a proper mayoral authority um, you know, has improved accountability, it's improved decision-making overall in terms of... You know, you know, 20 years ago, junior ministers would get up and announce the uh, changing of bus types on bus routes in London. So Whitehall was in the minutiae of running the city, which is by any standard, by any test, is absurd. There's no city in the Western democratic world, major city, which is run on those grounds. So we've seen a big change there. Related to that is just the is then the question of money. Because coming back to your earlier question, of course, you can have all the best ideas in the world, but without the financial resources to deliver them, you're pretty much stuck. And again, it's not perfect, but we have seen some meaningful moves towards giving London government, the boroughs included, you know, the boroughs are very powerful and important players in the way the city's operated, but we've seen moves to give them more financial um, autonomy. And that, uh, I think, I think everybody, I mean, from all sides of the political spectrum, think that thinks that that is a good thing, and it's something that should be encouraged further. So I think there are grounds for optimism, notwithstanding, you know, the fact that you could sometimes maybe um, cut your breakfast on 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 some of these things <laughs> on a sunny day. Alex. Do you feel that TfL and the boroughs have been um, efficient uh, in their uh, decisions on spending on, on infrastructure projects, in, in for cycling in particular? Yeah, well, I think more, more widely, I think it's interesting just briefly to think about this question of boroughs and funding in that actually several boroughs in London have really severe budgeting issues right now. And that for all there are offers of other funding, they are very much prescribed for certain purposes. Well, that does mean is that there is quite a good opportunity on infrastructure and that, for example, you know, if you look at cycling and boroughs, the programme that really speaks to that is the Mini Hollands programme, where three boroughs have explicitly got money to redesign their major town centres and their routes for local transport. And that has been a genuinely different TfL approach, but it's essentially a pilot programme. It's only for those that are willing and even of those three, only one, Waltham Forest, is really out there and delivering. I think the experience that we have uh, when we talk about cycling to most councils uh, is that there isn't necessarily good, consistent funding available. And that's one of the things that Mini Holland has fixed. But there hasn't been necessarily as much of an understanding of what good long term funding can achieve and where it can go. And I think especially in the boroughs at the moment, that a lot of the development is actually... Uh, in the hands of the developers and in the ways in which regeneration projects have gone. And that that has meant that there has not been enough focus on what works for local people. And that uh, I think there are interesting, I, I think, you know, 
Alexander spoke about the, the question of TfL and its democratic nature, and certainly TfL and its control under the mayor has been a, a change to that. But the way in which power is wielded in local government is still pretty much unchanged. Um, and well, uh, is that fair? Well, I'm, I'm not sure it's entirely... I mean, I do understand where Alex is coming from. I mean, I have some bad news for him, unfortunately, which is that in terms of the role of development and its importance, I think that's going to increase mm. in the next five, four or eight years because increasingly, and this started under you know uh, Tony Blair's government, the private sector is seen as being responsible for paying for the develop for the infrastructure to support its development, which is not a uniform way of doing these things. I mean, in some countries, you have a general taxation system, you pay your taxes, and the government then decides where to spend that money. And in the case of infrastructure, it has a framework for doing that, and it spends the money links to airports and all the rest of it. In Britain, we have this, an unusual system where the government says or in, encourages local authorities to say, where look to where you can extract as much money as possible from developers in order to pay for either their supporting infrastructure or other supporting infrastructure. So we don't just use the tax system, we use other forms of development gain to achieve that. And you could say that's fair because it means that less of a burden falls on the general taxpayer. But it does mean that it changes the form and shape of development because in order to be economically viable, they have to have, for example, a different mix of housing. You know, They have to have more expensive housing, which is controversial, in order to be able to withstand the resources which are then used for paying for the connecting infrastructure, the bus routes, tube line extension in the case of Nine Elms, um, other improvements which local authorities right, and TfL rightly looks to have in place in order to support the development. And with the devolution of um, the tax base to London, local authorities will have more of an incentive to look to growing their employment base, their commercial floor space and other things so that they can then fund and meet the needs of their citizens in other areas such as providing swimming pools, libraries to a certain extent, other facilities. So the model is going to be one in which there is more interdependence between development and paying for public services at a local level. And in overall terms, I'm not sure that's a bad thing because I think what it means is we'll end up with uh, positive incentives to accommodate growth and use those resources in order to sustain the city's fabric and invest in its infrastructure. John, do you see this as an inevitability and a good thing? Um, I think it's probably an inevitability in the current circumstances because the, there, there are other models. Um, you can you, you can tax the increase in property values and use that to pay for infrastructure or government could could basically get the land itself and then kind of sell the right to build on it rather than expecting developers to buy the land. Um, both of these things would, would change the system in some way um, and, and would mean that less responsibility for funding infrastructure was falling directly on the developers. Um, but I've seen no appetite for any of, of that sort of thing. I kind of personally think the best system would be some form of land value tax. Um, because that way, if there is an increase in property values brought around, uh, brought about by, say, a, a £15 billion new railway that we're building under London, then the people it's benefiting are helping contribute to the cost of that. But that's extremely difficult to envision happening politically because it basically means saying to the British public, you know that increase in your house price, well, you didn't actually earn that. Mm. 
although maybe in a time of lower home ownership that becomes easier you know actually that, that i can see very well that the dynamics may well shift that the the issues on that tax base start to, to disappear how uh, much do we all feel that Crossrail as a project has been a success and the um, uh, uprise, uh, the, the, the lift of, of values of, of land around stations that we see associated with that and uh, how important that Crossrail 2 uh, is, uh, that that proceeds at pace and uh, that that will follow along the same line of development? Um, Crossrail has been very successful in terms of project management. It's seen as this great success story that once it got started, it's all happened on time and to budget and very efficiently. And they've managed to build a tunnel with like two foot clearance between other tunnels and so on. And they've done all that brilliantly. Uh, What they've not done, though, is tied it to things like housing policy. So in in the outer reaches of it, it passes through large chunks of of pretty unattractive in places, Greenbelt, that could easily have provided quite a lot of homes to help meet London's need. Um, and they've just not done that at all because it was the whole thing was planned before the housing crisis really reared its head as a political issue. Um, I'm quite interested to hear from Kate on this one, actually, because, um, well, for the, for the reason that you, I think you said you lived in Chelsea. I do, yeah, che- yeah. Chelsea would get a Crossrail 2 station, but Chelsea didn't seem to want it. So we don't I'm, want I'm, it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kind of curious to know what the, think, the thinking is on that one. Um, I personally don't want it. Um, and I think it would cause a huge amount of disruption disruption to the area. I think it's if if it's something that the locals don't really want it seems pointless to spend over a billion pounds on it. And it it would go in a particular part of the road, which is actually lovely as it is. It's where the fire station currently is. Um, you've got the hospital just behind that. And it would be a shame to lose that whole block to eight to ten years worth of, of works for something that the locals don't really want. I also worry that it would turn the local area into a bit of an Oxford Street style shopping destination and it's already heading in that direction and I'm lucky enough to work from home um, and if I do nip out to my local high street it already feels quite congested with people um, and we are getting a lot more um, chain style shops and eateries uh, whereas before we had a lot of independent boutiques but I think that's because the rents will just continue to go up. Do you, um, do you feel across London that new developments have been uh, changing uh, areas of central London along those lines and um, is it, a, is, is it uh, squeezing the life out of London? I have to say I do walk along regularly and go oh gosh there's another building site and yesterday I was walking along the South Bank and counted the number of cranes and there were over 30 cranes that I could see in my eyeline I just thought when will it ever end Um, it would be quite nice to not have every section of London being developed into something into a vanity project or whatever but I think if it does add value to the area brilliant but it does seem that every day there's something new that's being popping up shall we say I mean Kate's right I mean as we mentioned before when when your population is growing by a hundred plus thousand a year you know and with imp- that's just the population. Employment is sort of estimated by the GLA to be growing around 40,000 a year. Mm. And we've got to find, arguably, if we're going to try and accommodate this growth or not uh, end up with a lot of problems associated with trying to cram that growth into the same size of city. You know, un- unfortunately, there, again, it's a bit like what we were talking about before mm. with Alex. I've got bad news for you, which is that development is going to, is very likely to continue apace. 
And um, I think, I mean, I think on Kensington Chelsea, it is worth pointing out that I think the leader of Kensington Chelsea and the, the political leadership is actually in favour of the yeah, station, even yeah. though some of the locals mm. may not be. But the the other thing I'll just observe is, you know, one of the consequences of um, not trying to accommodate growth is that it tends to push the prices of things up, including because supply is constrained, demand rises, and therefore there's a price effect. And one of the problems for policymakers when you try and resist providing more homes or more commercial space or shops is that the rents of these places goes up. And when the rents go up, you tend to find that it pushes out all the things that that people are perhaps understandably um, resistant to development um, tend to enjoy and like Mm. because the only people who can then pay those rents are the the big players, the multinationals, the chains and so forth. So there is definitely a balancing act here because actually by allowing development... Mm. Sensitive development, appropriate development, of course, but by allowing a certain amount of growth in in uh, building space, you can actually help to um, maintain the pressure on rents and therefore allow the sorts of businesses to operate, to thrive, that people associate with, you know, the villages of London. I do feel in my area, though, that you've, you can easily walk to two tube stations and the bus routes are very easy so it does seem a bit unnecessary to have a stop in Chelsea and I think I read that it doesn't connect to any other line at that particular stop whereas all the other ones on the crossrail too would. But isn't part of the point to think about how London changes as it grows, how it has it becomes denser. I mean, mm. Transport for London's annual Travel in London report had a quite a good section about how density changed travel habits um, I mean, personally, one of the things I picked up particularly from that was that cycling grows as density goes up. Um, intriguingly, it doesn't really show much of a change in walking. And that I found a bit of a surprise because personally, when I look at how, you know, let's say other cities work elsewhere and how places could work without, say, through traffic, then, you know, the situation you describe of, say, um, King's Road, presumably, yeah. being quite uh, pressured to walk down at the moment. Well, actually... There's space in that road to think about that whole area differently. And maybe if Crossrail was sold locally as a method of making that happen, it might get more support. I, I you know, Personally, I think that part of the difficulty for Crossrail uh, is that Crossrail 2, like Crossrail 1, is late. You know, it, it's after we need it. Um, and that some of the pressures that you might experience during the build phase of 10 years are partly because uh, we've already reached a stage where we have that population in the local area and it's travelling by other means. And say, for example, there's you know a lot of car traffic already or a lot of bus traffic already that needs to be managed around that building work as well. And you know, this is a problem that Edinburgh suffered horribly with its tram, that it was also so late that then it, that the actual process of building it dented the city for a time, but it was still necessary. And I can really buy into that. You know, I see that personally with the superhighways as well. Tell, tell me a bit more on uh, the superhighways. A, a lot of criticism of this blue paint on the road uh, that um, uh, causing drivers to uh, feel unhappy about them. Um, have some of those early uh, errors or concerns been addressed? Well, I think superhighways is very interesting in that it was a program that did have some um, presence actually under Ken Livingstone. Um, he, you know, he announced he would have five routes. Boris came in, said he would have twelve. We're talking about radial routes that go in and out of the centre of London 
the interesting thing was that the early phase didn't actually really get into the centre of London properly. The phases we're seeing now that are now more than just blue paint, but actual separate space on the road, do start to go through the centre. But they're meant to be accompanied by a grid of further routes so that you could actually conceivably come in from some area in sort of zone three, zone four, cycle all the way in and reach your office by a clear route. In practice, what we're going to get is a very loose network. But um, we do have to applaud the fact that there has been definitely a genuine step change. The cycle vision has uh, made some big differences in what's meant to be achieved. TfL has learned how to build some genuinely world-class cycling infrastructure. Um, the thing that still um, kind of concerns me with the superhighways is they are just so varied um, that you have everything from the very grand and impressive routes along the embankment and up and down uh, outside through Blackfriars that are now being completed uh, down to uh, those routes like Superhighway 1 that go through a number of back streets. Uh, and they're all valid key routes. But I think this notion of them being superhighways, ideally at some stage, needs to be dropped. And we need to start thinking about the need to have cycling as a part of what we have in our city uh, throughout and to enable not just these long distance journeys, but to overcome the barriers on busy roads and enable things as simple as cycling to school. Do, do the the rest of us feel is has cycling become a safe option for for everybody yet for um, older people, younger people? I think it comes down to your type of personality. Because um, I think I've got. Are friends. you a regular cyclist? No, I'm, I'm. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm a nervous cyclist, but I'm also a nervous driver. But I love, love, love walking. So I walked from Chelsea to Hackney the other day and I loved it. Um, but that's not for everyone. So I think you're either a cyclist or you're, you're somebody who it doesn't quite connect to it. Um, and I, I don't think everybody will ever feel completely safe. But I think there are a, a, certainly a good group of people who you definitely see loads of cyclists out. Um, I think cities 
around the world have changed incredibly fast on this one. Even sort of 10 years ago, cycling was considered a very sort of outsider activity, whereas it's increasingly seen as kind of a key mode of transport. I was in uh, Washington earlier this week, um, and there's cycle routes on a significant number, probably between a third and a half of the streets there now. Um, and they've all gone in in the last 10 years. And that's happened in Paris, that's happened in New York. And I think the trend in London is going to continue because it is getting to the point where we are we are gradually getting to grips with the idea that cyclists aren't them, cyclists are us. Mm. But we're not quite there yet. So um, with, with the, the, the sort of east cross, uh, so east-west London cross-cycle route, there's been a lot of complaints from the Taxi Drivers Association and from the haulage companies and so on about the idea of taking road space away from them. Um, people still kind of think of cycling as cycling space as something that's being done for other people. But as more and more people do it, and as it becomes clear, they're not all kind of, you know, um, like Guardian readers and so on, but it's, it's, you know, it's bankers, it's people commuting to all forms of work as well. I think political pressure is going to keep up and it will just become a standard mode of transport. But, but is there an issue for, for freight and other deliveries, for, for things that practically uh, do need to go by road uh, with uh, traffic speeds? It seems the same as they were um, 100, 120 years ago in horse drawn London. But removing lanes from roads does not necessarily increase congestion or Mm. reduce speed because some of the congestion you get is because people try and change lanes to get 10 feet further up the road and that slows everyone down. Sometimes if you reduce the number of lanes on the road, you can actually even increase the speed. Now, I've not looked at the reports justifying the, the cycling highways we're building. But it's not actually a, a, illogical that these could you could put these things in without it killing driving speeds at all. Yeah, and I, I think it's also a bit easy to focus on width and speed rather than actually capacity. And I, you know, I think people who are even in the cycle campaign sometimes are guilty of this. That you know, one of the common refrains talking about some of the cycle routes where they are already fantastically busy is to say, well, it needs to be wider, or we need it on the other side of the road. Actually giving cycles a bit more green time so they can just get through a junction. The capacity of these routes could be improved over time quite easily. You know, we actually have uh, similar abilities with what we can see on the main roads as well for the other traffic. And I think there are there are very big TFL programmes about thinking about delivery overnight, about retiming of deliveries and about consolidation. And that even even your Conservative candidate in this election is talking very keenly on those and that's about really controlling the traffic in the city. We're not seeing as much of that about the private car, but certainly where it comes to freight, I think there is the beginnings of a clear political consensus that there needs to be a lot more control and a lot more thought about how we manage it. How do you feel about roads policy, Under Morris? Well, I mean, I think we're all perhaps understandably taking a very sort of zone one view of this world of cycling. Because I mean, I'm it's important to say I'm a very, you know, I'm a keen cyclist and I'm on the bike three or four days a week. Um, I walk to work, which um, so at least I've got a vote there from Kate. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, um, got a walking buddy. Um, and indeed, although I'm not sure Chelsea to hang. I think there's a need for a tube or a well railway line there rather than. <laughs> but um, but uh, what I was going to say, really, uh, Josh, on this is that um, yes, cycling uh, is important. John's right. You know, we've seen in many cities, cycling has sort of come into vogue, if you will. It's seen as a um, uh, as a sort of cost-effective, popular way of calming down the street and promoting a form of transport which has lots of benefits around health, no pollution, and so forth. 
I think that my word of caution is that in order to extract the benefits from, you know, taking, reducing volumes of traffic or whatever it might be, you then have to really quite actively manage these assets. So, for example, in London, you know, it may surprise some of some of us around the table, but the volume of traffic coming into Central London in the morning peak, the number of people coming in by car, is around ninety thousand in the morning peak. So that's between seven o'clock in the morning and ten a.m. In the nineteen eighties, it was two hundred thousand people, and that's partly thanks to congestion charging and various other things. Traffic speeds, as you said, are roughly speaking back down now to where they were when congestion charge was introduced and you have to ask how we've managed to achieve that so we've halved the more than half the volume of traffic and traffic speeds are you know still bumping around the six to eight miles an hour sort of area thing and the reason for that is because the authorities and boroughs remember are very important in this tfl only owns or is responsible for certain roads, have either consciously or unconsciously arrived as a set of policies to put in cycling facilities, to increase the number of traffic lights and traffic light junctions, to increase the green person phase on the lights in order to give pedestrians more time to cross, um, and so forth. And there's also been a big jump in construction traffic in central London, so bigger vehicles than all the road for the developments that we've been talking about, and then, of course, a lot more roadworks. So the reason I mention all this is because I think a real challenge for the next mayor is to try and get a grip on the factors that sometimes make us feel as if the system is not really in control. So I think sort of thinking about how we manage the space more actively, you know, ref um, working with the city, and the fact that at different times of day, these roads and streets perform different functions. You know, sometimes Oxford Street is about people trying to get to work, um, walk to work or get to work on the bus. Other times it's a street which people walk down, you know, after they've gone out for the evening. It, so I just think we need to think about these things more, you know, creatively because it's because in a city which is as complex as London with relatively modest amounts of road space. I just think we have to think more cleverly as to how we manage a very scarce resource. Pedestrianisation of Oxford Street, the answer or a disaster? I, th I think it's one part of a, an interesting question. And I, I'm very intrigued in this election, uh, pedestrianisation of Oxford Street, especially by Sadiq Khan, has been linked to air quality. Air quality is a London-wide issue. And I think likewise, I think the question of pedestrianisation of Oxford Street needs to be addressed as Alexander says, as you know, part by looking at what we do about that wider London traffic. Because you can't, you know, as, as Andrew Gilligan said in the Human Streets document, you couldn't achieve bank closure and further change at Parliament Square and Oxford Street at the same time. I'm personally very struck that, for me, as someone who lives in Lewisham, that actually part of the solution to what you want to do about Oxford Street is the question of, well, what's the right number of people to attract to Oxford Street in the first place? And how good do we want... Oxford Street to be versus all of the other high streets in London. And I very much see it in that context that there's a danger of making one prestige project that costs a lot of money that doesn't actually work in the context of such a large city. And a lot of people, even in my generation at the moment, don't happily go into the centre. So who would it be for? Well, it's a great question. I mean, and it comes back to what Kate was saying about, you know, Chelsea, because at 
and, and this whole question of growth, because Alex is right, you know, at, at one at one level, we could say that we don't want Oxford Street to be you know, particularly busy, any more busy. We could say the Westfield centres at Stratford and at Shepherd's Bush, which are enormous by any standards. And there's another one coming at Croydon. And then there's a development at Brent Cross, which is going to take place. We could say we don't see Oxford Street's future as being a premier retail you know destination for tourists and for Londoners and we could make that decision as indeed Chelsea could make the decision that it is doesn't want to accommodate you know lots of traffic or railway traffic in this case and population growth I just think people need to be aware that the consequence of that approach is not to then expect the resources to come in to be invested in these areas in order to maintain or enhance the quality of life that people experience because the money will go to where the growth is happening. I personally think it would be very sad if Oxford Street declined. I think that, you know, if you look at parts of the West End, um, such as Regent Street um, where the, and Bond Street, where investment has gone in, a lot of it private sector investment, taking out two ways, uh, one-way road systems and so forth. I think they've, you know, they've, been, they've proven to be very successful and created attractive environments. Isn't the air quality level that we see uh, in Oxford Street and elsewhere in central London uh, and uh, continuing to break these EU limits, a real indictment of policy um, over the last uh, decade. Um, and what do we see as the answer to this? I mean, I think electric vehicles would at least move the emissions elsewhere. <laughs> you still have to generate the electricity somewhere. Um, I think the di- the diesel thing is a big part of it. But I, I think at some point we are probably going to move to a broader system of congestion charging. I think that's probably, you know, that's not going to happen in this mayoralty. That's probably not going to happen for generations. But I think that will gradually come in in cities around the world because the only way to convince people not to drive um, is is to kind of give them an economic reason not to. Uh, are any of us London motorists regular drivers? Yeah, I, I drive. I mean, I live in central London and drive again. I mean, I'm a sort of Sunday driver. <laughs> I, mean, I don't drive like a Sunday driver, but I am a Sunday driver, if you allow me that. I mean, I understand what John's saying, but but central London is not dominated by the private car. Central London is dominated by buses. And Alex mentioned before how many use Oxford Street. Much, much higher volumes of of bus movement than for any comparable city Mm. in the Western world. And I think policymakers are now going to grapple with that and try and improve it. And to be fair, you know, two, two thoughts. One is the number of vehicles, bus vehicles in the case of Oxford Street, has been coming down. And secondly, air quality has been improving. Over the last year or two, we've seen the rise of Uber and the impact of this on uh, travel choices and on traffic in central London. Uh, how many of us are Uber users or, and, and how many loyal to black cabs? I finally managed to get one and I think my sixth attempt. So I think the company has something against me. It must be reading my coverage. <laughs> I, I deliberately, I don't guess them because... I've heard that their workers aren't paid particularly well. They work extremely long hours. And I feel that... I I don't know, I feel quite loyal to the London black cabbie, Mm. personally. Personally, I I, I find it intriguing that there's this notion of Uber versus black cabs, because I think they're actually in a very different market in terms of especially how much they charge. But personally, to me, they're both 
above what I'm willing to pay to get home at night. Yeah, so actually, of course, I'd, I'd rather walk if well, I don't have heels. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.